Lord Mayor, Minister, representatives of the National Famine Commemoration Committee, Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, Akkadje Ilyuk, is more on an ordam eventually that is with the Swina sector Thomas, though should dorm winter a dollingagas of Urbos, Lelen and Tragoide, is Mohavak the Skelne here in Sanuish, and Gartamor, and Rahil, the famine. It is an honour and a privilege to be asked to join with fellow Irish people wherever they may be and in whatever circumstances, as we recall the lives, deaths, and suffering of all those of our people who perished during that tragic and never-to-be-forgotten event imposed on Irish people in the history of Northern Ireland. That is, on Gortamor, the Great Hunger, the Irish Famine. The famine of the 1840s that we are recalling today released a cataclysmic period in our nation's history. Beyond the deaths themselves, the emigrations, losses, in every aspect of the intimacies of life. It is an event that must be acknowledged in its fullness, horror, grief, sadness, and consequences, given due recognition as to what its sources were the responses to it, and what lay behind them. Understood in all its complexity, if we are to be enabled to move beyond it in time, to ever nurture a process of feeling such as might assist us in our dealing with it, including those who recognize that they constitute the successors of those responsible. We and they, have to deal with the challenges of the present and future, after all, without the burden of an unaddressed tragedy. Make a mutual acknowledgement of what is accepted as fact as to Ungarthamor, the famine. This is a necessary prelude to the understanding we must, however difficult it is, achieve together. The changes in agricultural practice in Ireland in the late 19th century, for example, in response to external demand, the move from labor-intensive tillage to grazing, which was less so, were brought about by clearances, eviction in so many cases. It had a devastating effect on the poorest, who were dependent on a single food source, the famine. That single food source having failed remains the single most important event in forming and giving form to, for Irish people, a distinctive form of relationship to the land, to emigration, to politics in all of the decades that followed. Ones defined by the famine, its catastrophe, its human aftermath. The determination to survive whether at home or abroad, was endured at a terrible cost. The famine resulted in apocalyptic conditions across Ireland, at a time, of course, when the responsibility for public action, for response, had in effect been abdicated by the government responsible. Ireland was part of the British Empire, and passed at midpoint of the famine. The responsibility was given to the heavily indebted Irish poor law unions. 
and Goethe Moore, the famine of the 1840s, was not needed to discover the grinding poverty to which so many of the Irish had been reduced. A great number of external European visitors, government reports, all had given facts and written in detail in many cases years earlier. There is over the whole country an air of utter destitution and abandonment, wrote a distinguished Hungarian visitor in his 1837 account, surveying pre-famine Ireland in 1837. Such accounts as his exist in their hundreds. The source of acceptance, rationalization of, and response to the famine is distinguished by the fact that those ruling in Britain had created the economic and food dependency conditions of such dismal hopelessness, of desperate dependence on the potato crop. The Act of Union had laid the ground and the consequences of its restrictions, all of which were premeditated and preceded in earlier times by what were barbarous penal laws, laws which were deliberate and methodical in their intent to lessen, reduce, exclude, forbid and deprive the vast majority of the Irish population of some of their most basic human freedoms, including that of religious practice or participation in the representative aspects of society. When blight struck in the 1840s, people of the country were utterly vulnerable, dependent, on what would be decided for them. We now have further detailed scholarly work from which to draw in helping us to understand the full context of the ideas that held sway at the time of the famine. It helps us reflect ever deeper on famine, its causes, impacts and long-term consequences on Ireland, Irish society and culture, our neighborhood. Supported with new scholarship and encouraged by new, more inclusive cultural endeavors, we are now well resourced to return to Angartha Moor and to internalize its depth and complexity, to confront all of the wider contributory factors, engage with the full consequences of that catastrophe which took place on our island approximately 170 years ago. We cannot adequately understand our history and its relationship with our neighbors on both sides of the Atlantic, the subsequent changes in social forces in our own country, and how these would inform our outlooks and politics without engagement with the Great Famine. An affected amnesia serves nobody. Rather, it emphasizes the heart, retains the old rationalizations that can no longer suffice. After all, a new form of emigration followed the famine. For Angartha Moore was not the sole founding event in the formation of the Irish diaspora. After all, over a million Irish people had already emigrated to North America between 1815 and 1845. Yet it can be viewed as perhaps the single most defining factor in the creation of what would come to be a distinct Irish-American cultural identity, one that would continue and continues to have an important influence from the famine period 
to today. It is an identity that anchors an enduring bond between Ireland and the United States, and not only those who claim Irish are involved, but all friends of Ireland value this relationship. The population figures of the time make stark reading. Between 1846 and 1855, 2.1 million people left Ireland. More people than the previous 250 years. Over 70% of those who emigrated would come to settle in the United States. The Times of London, a newspaper frequently hostile to the efforts to relieve the Irish famine at its time, could editorialise in the 1880s at what the significance of what a growing proportion of the Irish in an emerging powerful nation would be. For it was there in the United States, one of the strongest countries of the future, that it would be ensured that the Irish famine of the 1840s would become a central part of collective memory and a significant element of United States politics. They will never let us forget it, the Times editorialised in, in the 1880s. Yet the very vastness of these numbers of immigrants and their vital importance to the course of Irish history may sometimes obscure the enormity of the internal displacement, dispossession, and forced migrations during Ungartha Moor. And not only the decades, but the, in the decades, but the centuries which preceded it, the plantations, dispossessions, and exclusions of the previous periods had created a particular congested disposal of population on impossible holdings of land with the poorest living in what were near surf-like conditions. No people are thus better equipped to understand the impact of the term eviction from this period than the Irish people and their friends in the United States or elsewhere who are aware of the Irish experience. Irish people can understand so well the events that tragically are unfolding elsewhere as I speak in the Middle East. Evictions are provoking conflicts in states that, yes, are entitled to their security, but who are violating the basic laws that are the tools of internationally recognized protection against illegal eviction and destruction of homes of those whose rights are generations embedded and which should be acknowledged by all in the international community and supported. Solidarity at home in Ireland was, of course, tested by Ungartha Moore. It was never easy. There was a run for survival to the cities and the coast. The population of Cork City, for example, expanded greatly during the famine. Refugees streamed into the city from across the country, causing at first moral panics of survival, rather than any overwhelming sympathy amongst the general citizenry. During Black 47, the Cork Examiner wrote, the incursion of rustic paupers into the city continues unabated. They wait on the outskirts of the town till dark, when they may be seen coming in droves. 
Three hundred of these miserable creatures come into the city daily, who are walking masses of filth, vermin, and sickness. Reports such as this and the many others from the time lay bare not just what was an absence of, as Father Matthew suggested at the time, basic solidarity and empathy for human suffering, but they also constitute another ring of people that should be grounds for our reflection to the present day. Ireland then can accept and should accept that it has the moral obligation of not merely remembering, but of asking its friends of then and now not to surrender in our time to any indifference to conflicts having been allowed to continue, presented as intractable. When it is clear that such conflicts have not been approached with consistency, with continuity and commitment, in such a way as to compromise the possibility of resolution or of making an enduring peace. Such initiatives are necessary now, urgent, and of immense moral significance in international diplomacy. Was it three years or five? It took some time, but science did tackle and conquer the blight. However, the economic theory which guided it more correctly misguided the response, and all of its sustaining ideology was to be another matter. Ireland was, quote, a nation perishing of political economy, to quote Church of Ireland clergyman Richard Townsend, who devoted his time in Skibbereen to the care of the poor and the sick, and who toiled tirelessly in that town, which along with Skull, would be given the title of one of the two famine-slain sisters of the South, a death rate of over 50%. It would take quite some time later for it to be argued, both in Parliament and between the hedges at mass rallies, that a political economy suitable for Irish circumstances and values one that was, for example, more hospitable to state intervention and small-scale agriculture, that tended to be opposed to the crude commodification of land and to the asserted, unquestioned, hegemonic position of the market, could sustain an impoverished people. This was the subject of a famous confrontation, for example, between the old and the new economies. It occurred in the House of Commons in 1868, in a debate about Irish land, in which Robert Lowe argued that political economy, as a universally applicable science, belongs to no nation, it is of no country, to which John Stuart Mill replied, my right honourable friend thinks that a maxim of political economy, if good in England must be good in Ireland, I am sure that no one is at all capable of determining what is the right political economy for any country until he knows the circumstances? Tenants' rights campaigner Thomas Kettle saw this historicizing project as, I quote, a revolt of the small nations against the czardom, scientific and political, of the great. Yet it should not be forgotten that those who fell in the struggle for survival in the famine played with their lost lives, exiles, and poverty a crucial, if unchosen, 
part in demonstrating that a perverse version of political economy had then and can usually enlist a supporting community of scholarly, political, and indeed religious supporters. Yes, we have had a terrible lesson imposed upon our people, which carries its own warning into the present of the dangers of living under the sway of ideological assumptions untested. It took an ideological tendency of some strength and authoritarian tendency and support, confident of its place among those who held power, to impose a pernicious and dangerous economic orthodoxy that would sanction poverty amidst plenty, conspicuous consumption amidst mass starvation, an ideology that felt unchallenged in elevating a suggested absolute right of property to that of a natural law, while consigning any moral duty of humanity and of solidarity to passive voluntary acts of charity. Lessons to be learned. While it is important to acknowledge how pervasive that ideology was amongst many with authority and economic and social power in Britain, it is important, let us not forget too, that in relation to placing abstract market theories above life itself, non-interventionist ideology had its zealots here in Ireland lay and clerical. Such support sanctioned not only the withdrawal of support in the midst of Black 47, but also, as Nobel laureate Amartya Sen and Mike Davis have reminded us, would also be invoked in other but similar circumstances to rationalise, for example, the monumental catastrophe suffered by the Indian people and the action and inaction of the British Raj during the ending famines of the late 19th century. Amartya Sen has, of course, correctly insisted that famine is almost always a predictable and preventable occurrence if only the government in question has the political will to prevent it. James Donnelly, in his book, The Great Irish Potato Famine, wrote of how the response or lack thereof was part of a prevailing ideology among the political elite and the middle classes, which strongly militated against sustained relief. The doctrines of inaction were many and disastrous, included the economic doctrine of laissez-faire, a Protestant evangelical belief in divine providence, and the pervasive ethnic prejudice directed against the Catholic Irish, to which historians have recently given the name of moralism. Responding to this in New York on the 20th of March, 1847, the Right Reverend Dr. Hughes, Bishop of New York, could say, I plead there is a blasphemy in charging on the Almighty the result of our own doing. And he went on to say, there is no law in nature that forbids a starving man to seize on bread wherever he can find it, even though it should be the loaves of proposition on the altar of God's temple. Moralism, the notion that the fundamental defects from which the native Irish suffered were moral rather than financial was widespread among educated Britons of this era who ascribed serious defects to the Irish national character, 
including disorder or violence, filth, laziness, and worst of all, a lack of self-reliance as the cause of the famine. This was unambiguous xenophobic racial and cultural stereotyping. In distancing themselves from the famine and its consequences, it was suggested the Irish could be taught to, quote, stand on their own feet to wean themselves from their dependence on British support. This moralism manifested itself very clearly and with cruelty in the various tests of destitution that were associated with the administration of the poor laws. Thus, labourers employed in public works were required to perform task labour, their wages being measured by the amount of their work rather than being paid a fixed daily wage. Similarly, there was the requirement that in order to be eligible for public assistance, those in distress must be willing to enter a workhouse and to submit to its harsh disciplines, including endless days of breaking stones or performing some other equally punishing labour. As Dr Donnelly put it, such work was motivated by the notion that the perceived Irish national characteristic of sloth could be eradicated or at least reduced. All those who speak of it must face up to the uncomfortable truth that the famine was, of course, unavoidable. It was avoidable. In fact, there were numerous interventions that Britain could have made to mitigate its devastating consequences. Britain could have prohibited the export of grain from Ireland, especially during the winter of 1846-47, and early in the following spring when there was little food in the country, and before large supplies of foreign grain began to arrive. Once there was sufficient food in the country, the government could have taken steps to ensure that this imported food was distributed to those in greatest need. The government could have continued its soup kitchen scheme for a longer time, which was effective for just six months from March to September 1847, despite it providing food for up to three million people and proving to be both effective and inexpensive. Its decision to end it prematurely was again a policy of non-interventionism, supporting the Whigs' belief of how government and society should function. The remuneration that the government provided on its vast but shortly public work schemes in the winter of 1846-7 should have been much higher if those toiling were ever, ever to be able to afford the greatly inflated price of food. The poor laws providing relief either within workhouses or outside a system as virtually the only form of public assistance from the autumn of 1847 onwards should have been so far less restricted. A variety of obstacles were placed in the way of relief to those in dire need of food. The government could have restrained the ruthless mass evictions of 500,000 people from their homes as landlords sought to rid their estates of pauperized farmers and laborers. Above all, the British government should have been willing to treat the famine in Ireland as, yes, a humanitarian crisis that carried the responsibility, but also of imperial responsibility, a responsibility to bear the costs of relief after the summer of 1847.
but in an atmosphere of rising what was called famine fatigue in Britain. Ireland at that point and for the remainder of the famine was left to survive on its own woefully inadequate resources. All of this in a misguided effort to promote in that the ideology of a neighbour regarded not as equals but as lesser, responsible for their own misery. The leaning exponent of the providentialist perspective maybe is Charles Trevelyan, the British civil servant chiefly responsible for administering Irish relief policy throughout the famine years, who could write in his 1848 book, The Irish Crisis, a justification, a direct stroke of an all-wise and all-merciful providence, the sharp but effectual remedy by which the cure is likely to be effected. One which laid bare the deep and inveterate root of social evil. God grant that the generation to which this great opportunity has been offered may rightfully perform its part. Trevelyan was among those who were perhaps most influential also in persuading the government to avoid intervening in anything, restraining mass eviction, which would result in a radically restructured Irish rural society along the lines of the model ardently preferred by British policymakers makers of the day. Let us have all these facts then acknowledged. Let us review all these options not taken, debated, and reviewed. But then we must move on drawing on what our experience has taught us. Surely it has taught us that we must not ever be indifferent, have the courage to challenge our friends and opponents alike, to reject indifference. And the multi-loader itself, surely, has to reject impunity and indifference if it is ever to have legitimacy. My focus get into finish. As we meet, of course, the threat of famine affects 34 million of our fellow global citizens today. Yemen, the United Nations informs us, is in imminent danger of enduring the worst famine that the world has seen in decades. I said the United Nations. Why isn't it our United Nations responding to all of the nations of the world? A quarter of a million Yemenis have died from violence, starvation, and preventable illness over the last six years alone. At least 20 million of 28 million Yemenis are in desperate need of food and health care. Four million are homeless. Millions more are threatened by ongoing military operations. 400,000 children suffer from acute malnutrition and could die or contract cholera, diphtheria and measles without prompt treatment. These shocking figures stand as an indictment not only in the protagonists of this proxy conflict, and their supporters, but on all the international community, who must not, suffering from what Pope Francis has called the virus of indifference, look on, avert their gaze, and refuse to ask. Refuse to act. Kedid Natara 
O hef denach te teden yra kartar le brapish yon denach. Agas nyra arditar chak as fort kriak fein kushak sain. Agas brain milite geofilichu. We in Ireland should understand better than many the bitter residue that persists for generations when human beings and our most basic humanity give way to a callous doctrine of self-interest, greed, dangerous insensitive militarism and geopolitical indifference. Let us recognize then that today all of us need a renewed moral consciousness such as will produce global movements across borders of an informed, committed, scientifically aware, generous and kind, employing all the necessary courtesies of discourse, working towards a civilization of sufficiency, societies of care, compassion, kindness and solidarity, ones which eschew the insatiability of boundless consumption, which reject war and conflict as ever being inevitable, ones that will ensure that the needs of all can be met. The COVID, the minister has mentioned, the pandemic, has surely shown us that there is only need, surely there is now a need, for a better paradigm of existence. But there is, it is achievable with a harmonious, sustainable connection of economy, ecology, and ethical society. All movements combining to make a better force for a better world. One in which the private and public sectors are not pitted against each other, but where the great strengths of cooperation of all peoples are utilized for the betterment of the citizens and the delivery of universal services. And as to a healing then, as to how the scars of Ungartha Moran so much might be healed and in a lasting way, with painful legacies in time translated. Perhaps Sinead O'Connor's remarkable song, Famine, puts it well. And if there ever is going to be healing, there has to be remembering and then grieving so that there can be forgiving. There has to be knowledge and understanding. Karamila Mahaki Sparbano.